Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most horrific, the most high-profile homicide cases in Maryland, they are discussed, they are examined, and they are profiled. Now, according to the LegalDictionary.com, the word parasite is defined as the murder of a close relative that could be like your siblings, like a brother or sister, or the victim could be like an aunt, uncle, a close cousin, or any other close relative. And you would think that the murder of a parent would, you know, warrant an automatic like life sentence, but apparently it does not, especially, well, apparently not in the state of Maryland anyway. And mostly all of the murderers that are profiled in this season have either already served their time, they have been released, they have moved on. And for those listeners who are, you know, truly familiar with me and my story, to answer your question, no, I will not be profiling or discussing the murder of my father because that case has already been profiled for TV One several times. And that pretty much, that whole case is pretty much old news now. So you should already know the details of all of that. You can check all of that out on um, my Payback episode or my Justice By Any Means episode. Or you can just click on the podcast episode entitled Why I Do What I Do. But anyway, for this season, season eight, the focus or topic of discussion will be killers or you know, for whatever reason, have murdered their parents or like their mother or their father, or it could be like a grandparent or basically killers who have been accused and convicted of murdering a parent, conspiring to, to you know, commit murder to a parent or something like that. So for this season, season eight, or um, <clears throat> this season, season uh, epi- uh, episode that I'm going to profile now, the killer that I'm going to profile for this particular episode is uh, 18-year-old Linda Linda Sue Glazer. And like I have done in every single episode that has been featured on this podcast, a portion will be dedicated to an unsolved homicide that needs special attention or the case needs to be reopened or something because basically not a lot if anything is being done with the case anymore and the unsolved murder that i'm going to profile is the unsolved stabbing murder of 32 year old stephen duane godwin now in a lot of cases that i have profiled where the child killers the parents you know where i should say where where the kid kills the parents or whatever the child, in some cases, the child claims that they were being abused by their parents, either physically, uh, verbally abused, or even sexually. And eventually, after they have served a significant amount of time in this day and age, they are eventually released from prison, um, especially if the alleged ab- abuse was proven to be true. So that happened in the case of Linda Glazer. 
from the very beginning, Linda's life was screwed up. I mean, just, you know, one of them type of kids where just born to a life of destruction and poverty. She was born in North Carolina in 1956. Uh, Linda's father left the family when Linda was still a child. And according to articles in the Baltimore Sun, shortly after Linda's family left the family, Linda's mother moved her and her two older brothers to Jacksonville, Florida, where the family continued to struggle financially to make ends meet. Linda's mother, she could barely provide for her children, and plenty of times they had to eat food out of the trash can, basically just to survive. Linda's mother, she could barely provide for her children, and plenty of times they just, ugh, I mean, she did what she knew best to get money. And sometimes she would bring strange men to the house to sleep in the bed with her while her kids slept on the couch. Some of these men would come over, um, according to Linda, they would sexually abuse her, but she kept quiet about the abuse. When Linda turned four years old, um, when she turned four years old, uh, Child Protective Services finally got word of the conditions that the kids were living in, and they intervened. They came in, they split up the family, and young Linda was moved out of the state and put in several different foster homes in various different states before she finally was put in a foster home in New Jersey, where that family eventually adopted her. Now, imagine that. You, as a kid being moved around i mean being in from foster home to foster home is bad enough but in different states that's that's kind of rough so anyway she ends up adopted by this family in new jersey um lisa later told the authorities that before she got to this family in new jersey that she was physically and sexually abused in all of the other foster homes that she had been at so that's something else she had to deal with after Linda was adopted when she turned seven years old, and back then she was known as Linda Sue Miller because she was the couple's only adopted daughter. But after a few years of living with that family, Linda's adoptive mother, who had her own mental health issues, which I don't even know how she passed the adoption process, but she was seeing a therapist herself. And she started having regrets and second thoughts about adopting Linda. And she made plans to send Linda to an institution because basically she flat out, she just ain't one her no more. Which I didn't know you can do that. But weirdly enough, a neighbor, which I, I kind of thought this was weird when I was doing research on this. A neighbor noticed, yeah, he, he a, a male neighbor Basically, he noticed Linda playing with the other kids in the neighborhood, and he decided that if nobody else didn't want her, then he and his wife would adopt her. Amazingly, the adoption went through, and on Christmas Day in 1963, William and Dorothy Glazer drove from New Jersey to Cambridge, Maryland, in Dorchester County, with Linda as their new adopted daughter. And in Maryland, William and Dorothy appeared to have provided Linda with somewhat of a good life. They lived in a nice waterfront house in a middle-class neighborhood. 
Linda had plenty of friends. She had a bike. She played sports. She loved reading. She liked books. Um, Linda's family kept her busy and they were members of the Episcopal Church where Linda sang in the church choir. To the outside looking in, everything seemed normal with the family. But shortly after Linda turned 12 years old, Dorothy was away from the home hospitalized after undergoing a medical procedure. And while she was in the hospital, Linda and her newly adopted father had a big ass argument where she first they ended up fighting well actually she was ended up getting a beating by him and later that night according to articles in the baltimore sun uh linda was also raped by her father because of all the repeated sexual abuse that linda had suffered all throughout her life which she later told authorities that she thought was normal behavior she thought that every kid went through this by the time she hit 13 Linda was sneaking out of the house to go hook up with different boys. Doing what she, you know, only what she knew. And when she got caught, she got even more beatings from her adopted father. The beatings didn't stop Linda from sneaking out of the house. It didn't stop her from running away and hooking up with boys. And it didn't stop her from, you know, basically just being promiscuous. At one point, she says that she was even pregnant by her father. And she got an abortion. I mean, that didn't even stop Linda from doing whatever, you know, she wanted to do. I mean, and the beatings also didn't stop her father from whipping her ass every time she came back. I can't even, well, I can't even say I can't imagine. <laughs> Sounds like a familiar territory, but that's a whole different story. But after one particular rough beating that she got from her father... Linda ran away to a neighbor's house and called the Dorchester County Sheriff's Department to tell them that she was being physically and sexually abused by her adoptive parents, where she was still, um, you know, physically and sexually abused. She basically was telling them that, and the, the leaving out and coming back and the beatings and sex abuse continued even after she told the sheriff because she said nobody believed her. And she was just 13 years old. So after Linda ran and one particular time when she ran away and didn't come home from school one day at the age of 13, her father called the police and had her locked up for being a runaway, which is also something that I didn't know that you could do as a parent. But like I said, this was, I guess this was in the seventies, but he had the girl arrested and locked up. So in 1970, the juvenile courts labeled, uh, Linda delinquent and she was then sent to reform school for several months. Linda later told reporters that she finally felt peace when she was in reform school because all of the abuse had finally stopped. She was like, you know, reform school was a savior. She wasn't being abused by her father. She wasn't being molested. She wasn't being beaten. You know, she was, she felt like she was struck. She had structure. But Linda's peace was short-lived because in August of that same year, she was sent back to live with her adoptive family again. And the rapes and molestation with her adoptive father started up again. And according to juvenile court records, mostly all of Linda's problems came from the fact that although she hated her father for the abuse, she loathed her mother for allowing the abuse to happen and to continue. 
Linda later told reporters, in her words, she said that she was trying to, she said that I was trying to steal her husband and that she blamed her for seducing him, which is insanity. She said I was trying to, you know, basically steal her husband. Even Linda's juvenile court records state that these problems center around the poor marital relationship of Mr. and Mrs. Glazer and the jealousy and contempt displayed by them towards Linda. So one day, Linda's adoptive mother came home and she actually found her husband in bed with the teen. And after that, after he, after he got caught, he stopped having sex with Linda. But Linda's mother also stopped speaking to him and, or, and her husband because she was so jealous and so conflicted that Linda's father eventually just ended up calling her Linda's probation officer and told him that, again, he did not want Linda in his home and he couldn't tolerate her anymore. I bet you the mother was like, it's her or me. Ain't that something? Linda's probation officer didn't take Linda, you know, right out the house or nothing like that. And the abuse still continued. Linda later told reporters for the Baltimore Sun that she thought all of this was just normal. She said that he had used his hands or his fists at the dinner table. He just backhanded right across the face. She said one time he'd use a belt or sometimes he'd use whatever was available like a broom. Linda said that she did report the abuse to a county district attorney and to the staff at some of the juvenile institutions like reform school that she was sent to over the years but everybody said that William and Dorothy had stellar reputations in the community and nobody believed the abuse like they just could not believe that what Linda was saying was true because these people were so respectable and I guess highly favored in the community so 17 year old Linda she graduates from high school and right after high school she meets 23-year-old James Adi Greenwell. Now, James was a married dude. He was separated from his wife and, and living in the trailer by himself when he hooked up with the 17-year-old. Now, I guess because he was older, he gasoline his head up about how he was a Vietnam vet and all this and all that, and he's a military man, which all that turned out to be a lie. You know how they do when you're dating a younger chick. Anyway... Linda told James about how she had been abused practically all of her life. And I guess, you know, the rough upbringing kind of joined them together. And she basically told James that she wanted him to be some sort of knight in shining armor and to take her away from her dismal, fucked up life. And somehow the talking to all of that, you know, take me away and help me out and my life is so screwed up some kind of way that led into just getting rid of all her parents and her problems altogether could be solved by just getting rid of her parents so on the morning of september 21st 1974 around 7 a.m the now 18 year old linda came home to let her parents know that she was in the house and that she was home and when she went into her parents' bedroom to let them know, you know, that she was home or whatever, according to published accounts, 
uh, Linda's father grabbed her breast and tried to pull her in to give her a kiss. Now, Linda had James with her that night, I mean that morning, and James saw William, which was Linda's father, do this, and that completely infuriated him. It completely filled him with rage. So Linda ran out of her parents' bedroom when it seemed like James was going in fucking trance or something. But James had other plans instead of running out of bedroom. James marched to his car, got a shotgun that he drove around with, stomped back into Linda's house, marched into Linda's parents' bedroom, raised that shotgun, and pulled the trigger, shooting both of her adoptive parents both 50-year-old William Glazer and his wife, 47-year-old Dorothy Glazer, were killed instantly. While the murders were taking place, Linda had started ransacking the house to make it seem like the murders were a robbery gone bad. After the murders, Linda and James left the house and her parents weren't discovered until two days after they were killed when the one of the nephews came home and found them like that in the condition that they were in. Now, both Linda and James were caught eventually. Shortly after the murders, they both immediately just confessed to the police that they had planned the murders of her parents for months. But James said that he had gotten nervous and scared and he chickened out like several times. Like he had tried to do it before, but he just kind of chickened out because he said... He didn't have, not that he didn't have enough courage, but he didn't have Satan in him. And he didn't have, like, the black magic, spiritual, like the black magic, magic spirit in him or some, some shit like that. But he said when he saw what his father did to her that day, he said that he did have it in him on that night. I mean, on that morning. So Linda told the police that, like I said, he seemed like he was in some type of trance or something because that kind of messed his head up to see and adopt the father, do something like that. And she said that he was in a trance that was beyond her control when he shot her parents. Now, Linda told the detectives that although she and James had talked about killing her parents all the time, like for months, she had no idea that James was going to do it on that particular day. And they felt zero remorse. Like, they felt zero, they wasn't sorry at all. As a matter of fact, she probably was happy that he was that their parents were dead. She had no problem telling the police about her hatred of her parents and how much she hated them, how much she detested them. She told them in her words, she said, from the time I was 12 years old, I told everybody and anybody, I just wish they'd die and leave me alone. Mm, that is rough. So because of all of that and, you know, it only took 90 minutes for a Somerset County jury to convict Linda of conspiracy to commit the murders and in April of 1975 Linda was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences even though technically she didn't really plan her parents murder it kind of sort of just kind of like happened I mean it wasn't really planned when you really think about it Linda's boyfriend James was also sentenced to two consecutive life sentences but prison was like a savior to Linda and she actually ended up thriving in prison. She was like a model prisoner and she worked in a sewing department. She got training in prison for like accounting and she worked on data entry while the whole time while she was locked up. 
and she managed to earn a degree from Morgan State University while she was behind bars. Linda ended up doing so good in prison that despite having two consecutive life sentences, Linda did have a desire to be free from prison. I mean, who wants to be locked up? Despite, you know, having those life sentences and especially being locked up as a kid, and especially when you know that you can contribute to society in a positive way. So in 1993, Linda requested clemency based on her claims of physical and sexual abuse by her adoptive parents. And she, based on the fact that, you know, a claim that she didn't get a chance to even bring up the evidence of her being abused on her trial. At the time, the governor was William Donald Schaefer, which a lot of people from Baltimore, I know y'all remember him, and he received Linda's case for clemency. Times were different in the 90s than they were in the 70s, 20 years later. And plus, I remember Schaefer, and he, I guess you can say he was pretty much lenient type of governor. I mean, he did create the hub and all that. You know, they got buildings after him and stuff like that. But anyway, after Governor Schaefer, um, he reviewed her case in November of 1993. Governor Schaefer, um, he reduced Linda's sentence from two consecutive life terms to two concurrent life terms. And that made Linda legally eligible for parole in the upcoming month and year of January 1994 instead of January 1998. So the move that that move right there by Governor Schaefer was the first time ever that a governor shortened a sentence for an inmate that had been convicted of murdering their parents because the parents had been proven to be abusive after they were killed. Now, I don't mean just in Maryland, I'm talking about in history. So, you know, that's basically saying that he was basically saying that he agreed with her claims of abuse. And on December the 21st, 1995, right before Christmas, Governor Schaefer sliced Linda's two life sentences to 25 years. And since Linda had plenty of good time credits, um, on December 29th, 1995, the now 38-year-old Linda was released from prison, a completely free woman. She had served about 20 years. Linda had plenty of supporters, including her attorney, her friends, and plenty of church-going members of the Epiphany Episcopal Church in Odenton who had campaigned for her to be released because of all the abuse and everything that she had went through as a child. I mean, she plus she didn't, you know, pull the trigger. Linda still had five years of supervised parole, and the judge who had sentenced Linda to two life terms um, in her, you know, 20 years before, he didn't like changing he didn't like nobody basically changing his original sentence that he had gave out and he gave a comment to the press that said i'm disappointed she doesn't deserve to be out it was an unusually cold-blooded murder she just made bold allegations that she had been sexually abused nobody believed it i didn't believe it she couldn't back it up she was in trouble all her life as far as her parents their reputation was impeccable. Hmm. That's the 70s, man. Anyway, 
her co-defendant, the actual murderer, James didn't get no deals and he remains in prison. Now, the reason why I, I selected this one as a notorious parasite case in Maryland because it's proof that life don't necessarily mean life in Maryland. Like a life sentence don't necessarily mean a life sentence in Maryland, especially when there's claims of abuse involved, you know, in the parasite cases and stuff like that. I mean, you can't just physically and sexually abuse a child all their life. And when they kirk the fuck out, you, I mean, you kind of caused it. It's, it's like a slow death. You was killing your child with the abuse. So it's, I'm not saying that, you know, that person deserved it or whatever. Because, you know, I really don't condone violence on here. Or especially not murders. I always say every case needs to be solved. But you can't ask for, that's, you can't do that to you. You can't do that to your child. You really just can't. I mean, I can't imagine what she went through even before she got to her adoptive parents. So, I wonder if she keeps in contact with uh, her biological mother. I would love to hear the story on that if she keeps in, if Linda keeps in contact with her biological mother and her biological family, like the brothers and stuff like that. You know, that might could be therapeutic to, I don't know, um, see if there's a connection there. Um, this is also a case where. Um, a lot of people don't believe this, but trust me, you see how how outside, how her outside or at home life was. Prison can be a savior for some people. She thrived in the structure, you know. She got degrees and stuff like that. She was clean and sober, you know. She thrived in prison. She wasn't being beaten. She wasn't being abused. I'm quite sure she probably was showing affection in prison. So that's one of the positive sides. That was a, a positive outcome to this story. Even though it lost two, uh, quote-unquote, impeccable parents who, you know, there was a judge who begged to differ and decided otherwise, that they wasn't as impeccable as everybody thought. And also, they all thought that it was not like, like I said, that she pulled the trigger. I mean, conspiracy is one thing. So, um, I'm quite sure she's doing fine now if she's, you know... She's released. I'm quite sure, you know, she's making up for lost time. But this was one of the cases that I decided to select as one of Maryland's most notorious parasite cases. And simply for the fact that, um, um, like I said, this is one of, one of the first that a governor decided to reduce the sentence based on, to reduce the sentence of a defendant that has been convicted of a double murder case based on allegations of abuse that were proven allegations of abuse so of course yep one of Merlin's most notorious and now we're gonna move right on to this episode's unsolved homicide and just like in every single episode that has been in this podcast although a lot of attention and focus is placed on um, homicide cases where they may have received a lot of a press, a lot of attention, a lot of this, a lot of that, a lot of media coverage. This podcast also shines a light on the many homicide cases that we see in this state that do not receive that type of attention, that do not receive a lot of press, if any attention at all. These type of murders are so common in this state 
that there's not a lot of time to focus on just one. I mean, sometimes when a person gets murdered in this lovely state of Maryland, you don't hear nothing else about it other than the initial report. And the number of homicides that are unsolved in this state is completely baffling. It's unbelievable, really. I mean, it's obvious that homicide detectives, they can't do it all by themselves. It's not like what you see on the first 48. You know, in Maryland, it's not like that because homicide detectives are often overworked, underpaid, under stress, and flat out outnumbered and kept busy all the time, especially in Baltimore City. But what happens to the cases where nobody is talking at all? Like, what happens when there's absolutely no clues, no witnesses, no evidence, nothing whatsoever? Somebody was here one minute and they was gone the next. What happens to the cases where, because of the victim's past or the victim's lifestyle, where it seems like the detectives ain't really trying to investigate the case because the victim, quote-unquote, had it coming. What happened to those type of homicide cases? What type of, you know, why come they don't get a lot of attention? It Does it seem like the killer or killers just simply just got away with murder? It just seems like literally nothing is done with these forgotten homicides, not because nobody cares anymore. I'm quite sure the family still cares. But because the it these cases, nothing really done because... The public simply forgot all about it because we've been bombarded by so many new homicides. It's like we have been immune to homicides in the state of Maryland. Well, on this podcast, although I do talk about cases where the murder did receive a lot of attention and notoriety, on the flip side, a focus is also on homicide cases that did not receive the amount of attention that they deserve. And with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the stabbing murder of 32-year-old Stephen Duane Goodwin on October 18, 1984, at around 10.30 p.m., Baltimore County Police responded to the Corinthian Lounge and Restaurant in the 7100 block of Windsor Mill Road for a man who had been stabbed and was now lying in the doorway of a packaged goods store where his father worked at. There, they found 32-year-old Stephen Duane Goodwin, Godwin, who had been stabbed in the chest. Stephen had been at the Corinthian Lounge for about two hours on the night he was killed. His father had worked next to Corinthian's at the package goods store and Stephen had just said goodbye to his father and had walked out to the parking lot before he ran back in and collapsed in his father's arms. Stephen was rushed to Baltimore County General Hospital before he was pronounced dead 30 minutes later. As of right now, there are no suspects and there is a cash reward of up to $2,000 for any information regarding this unsolved homicide. So if you have any information at all in this this homicide, especially one of Corinthians, I mean, please call detectives at 410-887-3943. Or you can call Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. 
or you can text tips to C-R-I-M-E-S, which is crimes, at 274637. Once again, those numbers are 410-887-3943 or Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP or you can text your tip or any information to crimes at C-R-I-M-E-S, which is 274-63. I'm sorry, 274-637. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast via Spotify for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. And for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the uncensored version of why I decided to start a real true crime podcast. A lot of people think that I just woke up one day and then had murder on my mind and then boom, there's a podcast. But nope, that ain't even half the truth. There is a real therapeutic message to this true crime world of gore and mayhem and all that stuff that I live in. And if you click on the episode entitled Why I Do What I Do, you'll understand more about why I'm so wired up, why I'm so crazy, why I'm so fascinated with true crime. I also want my listeners to know that very, very, very soon, the documentary version of the, well, the film version of this podcast episodes number one, which focused on accused child murders, Adon Canella and Policarpio Espinoza, will be released very, very soon. Now, I got to let y'all know, I'm going to put it right out there. I have seen uh, some of the edits and it's very, very, very gory. It does come with a disclaimer. So if you don't want to really understand what really happened in this case, I wouldn't suggest that you watch it. But if you do want to know, you know, the truth, what really happened, be my guest. I mean, we're, this is a true crime genre, genre that we're dealing with. I mean, and for my listeners and my viewers and stuff like that, and even in my books, people that really do research on me and know who I am, I don't censor anything. So I'm not going to start censoring it now. I mean, I want people to know what really happened. And if you can't handle the truth, then you probably shouldn't even be on this podcast. Or if you can't handle the goriness, because this is this is light compared to what the visual aspect I you know what I could do um you this is this this is coming from a viewpoint of somebody who has done crime scene cleanup who's almost immune I, I grew up in Baltimore you know one of my earliest memories people that really know me and know my story one of my earliest memories was seeing somebody get stabbed I think I was like what six and just watching somebody get stabbed right in front of the side of our house so it's we're this is something that and I thought that was normal. So, you know, like I said, the my the documentary is kind of gory. But as long as the parents are, are cool, or I won't say cool with it, but I've discussed this with the parents and everything and they want this message out there. So all of that, I say all of that to say that it will be released very, very, very soon. And when the documentary, which was produced by Savage Life Productions, it's called Savage Life for a Reason, 
It was filmed on location in Baltimore City. It will be available for download. This is like, uh, <laughs> I will definitely keep you posted as to where you can download it. And while you're at it, you can stop on over to the new website, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders.com. And Maryland is spelled MDS, Most Notorious Murders.com, where you can access all episodes of this podcast and check out the different seasons that we have focused on, like, um, infant like teen killers uh relationship husband wife types of um, homicides even weird rapist types of homicides you can also find links to all of my true crime books that are loosely related to this podcast entitled uh maryland's most notorious murders 1990 through 2008 maryland's unsolved homicides volume one and my local bestsellers until i get caught the true story of a serial rapist in baltimore and also um junkie a true baltimore story you can also check me out on season one of payback which airs for the tv one network you can check me out on the oxygen network for black widow murders where i profiled maryland's female serial killer josephine gray or you can check me out on tv one's justice by any means tv one's fatal attraction where I profiled the North Carolina child murderer, uh, Peter Moses. Or you can find me hosting Killer Kids for the LMN Network, where I profiled teen killers Sarah Citroni and Jason DeLong. Once the season one documentary is available for download, you'll also be able to find the links here at MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com. Please, please be sure to tune in next week, where another gruesome, another high profile homicide occurring in maryland it will be profiled it will be examined and it will be discussed on maryland's most notorious murders this has been a savage life production